glad you're here as we continue to work our way through this uh, book of Ephesians. It's actually an epistle, meaning a, a letter, and it was written by the Apostle Paul to the church, to the Christians living in the city of Ephesus. And as he's writing this letter, you've got to understand, they would receive these letters and they'd read them out loud, and they'd read them out loud to a group of, that was really a, a mixed group of people. There were those who were, were Jews, those who had been waiting for the promised Messiah and, and, and through faith were able to see that Jesus was the promised Messiah. But also in that group were a number of Gentiles, Gentiles who uh, didn't expect a Messiah, and yet uh, now they have seen that God includes them in his plan of redemption. Uh, and so last week we, we saw just this vivid description uh, for the Gentiles, you know, what life was like for them before they knew Christ and, and before Christ had, had come and died on the cross. And what we learned is that they were alienated from God, that they were outside the covenant of God, that they were without hope and they were without God. Um, but all that has changed as a result of the blood of Christ being poured out, not just for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. And so um, then in our text today, we're going to be learning about a, a wall, um, a wall that has become this symbol of hostility between two groups. Um, and there's no way to read this without trying to think, uh, without the idea of current politics coming to mind. Uh, and so as we kind of approach this passage, I want you to, to understand that what we learn in this passage certainly speaks into that cultural and political conversation, uh, and yet this passage is nothing to do with the proposed wall on the Mexican border. See, the central point of, of this passage today is not that walls are good or bad, but rather, you know, wherever the gospel is, is active, wherever the gospel is, is present, we're going to be seeing these, these walls come down. And, and so long as the gospel is missing from the conversation about the wall on the, uh, on the Mexican border, it's going to be a very different conversation than the one that Paul is leading us into right here today. Um, and so let's, let's read this passage, Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, beginning in verse 14, and then we'll pray and, and get into it. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, and so making peace. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray. Father, we long for peace. But we live in a world of great hostility, hostility at you, uh, hostility between each other. Uh, may we this morning really learn the peace that you have accomplished for us with your finished work upon the cross. May this truth change us so that we might find unity across racial and cultural differences uh, as we find unity in, in the common need of the gospel and the way that you have provided it for us. We ask that you soften our hearts this morning to believe these scriptures as we seek to understand and, uh, and apply them to our lives. It's in Christ's name that we pray. <clears throat> Amen. So beauty pageant contestants are often asked something along the lines of, if you were granted just, just one wish, one, one hope for the world, 
What would it be? And their response has become somewhat of a stereotype for everyone who's ever been in a pageant. And yet the answer they give is, is actually the same answer that many academics and many athletes and politicians and countless people around the globe would give to the same question in one way or another. I mean, you know the answer already, world peace, right? Um, it's almost universal desire of, of the 7 billion people currently living on this green earth. In fact, uh, one NBA player a few years back actually changed his name uh, to Meta World Peace. When asked about why he did it, it was to, to signify this was his desire for the world. Uh, on a side note, his way he played showed anything but world peace. Um, and yet, that's that desire. You see, the, the reason that so many people long for peace in the world is, is that we feel the weight of its opposite. We feel the, the hostility between groups of people who are different from each other. We, we see the conflicts that are, arise in the absence of peace, and this gives a great rise to fear and anxiety in our own hearts. We see it in our, our nation today. There's this this deep-seated mistrust, this hatred between races, and we watch it play out on the evening news over and over and over again, or the internet. No one really watches the evening news anymore, do they? Um, but we desire peace. We desire peace in the world. We desire peace in our nation. We desire peace in our families, our relationships. We desire peace wherever it is that we are. And, and so long as the nations continue to ra rage, I cannot promise you world peace. I wish I could, but I can't. Uh, but in the gospel, I, I can assure you that peace can be had. Peace can be had in your own heart. Peace can be had in your home. Peace can be had in many places, many relationships where even today you may not see peace. And so let's consider this passage as we work through here. And the first thing to notice here is that there is this repetition of the words hostility and peace. In each instance, they're dealing with a, a different situation. That's why there is this reputation, repetition. And, and you've also got this repetition because these are opposite sides of the same scale. You see, to the degree that, that we have this hostility, uh, we are not going to experience peace. And to the degree that we have peace, we're going to experience less hostility. So if you like outlines, and I should have put this in there, but I didn't have it yet, uh, we're going to be looking at hostility uh, as the way that it exists between God and humanity and, and between Jews and Gentiles, between different groups. And then we're going to look at peace, the, uh, the peace that is created by Christ's death and resurrection, uh, peace between God and humanity, and as a result, the peace that comes between uh, people across many different ethnic groups. So uh, first, let's be sure that we understand what hostility is. Romans 8, 7, uh, in that book, it tells us that the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. And it gives a little explanation. It says, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Paul referred to us, actually, also in Romans, in chapter 3, uh, or chapter, verse 3 of that same chapter, by saying that outside of Christ, we are children uh, of wrath. And the chapter before, Romans 2, speaks of the unregenerate, unrepentant man and woman by saying that because of, your hand, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. 
Our sin has created this, this wall of hostility between us and God. Um, it's kind of like in, in sports teams, you know, we, we kind of assume there's this hostility between the teams on some level. It's not a, a pretty thing to see sometimes, but um, one of the things I've noticed in, in soccer sometimes is that it actually uh, changes so that the hostility is not just between teams, but between the teams and the referee, the person who has been put there to, to enforce the rules. Uh, at times, these, these videos I'll see from places overseas will even show the ref running for his life as, uh, as the players chase after him, looking to pummel him. Sometimes the players on both teams are going after him. You see, there's this, this wall of hostility <clears throat> between humanity and, and our very creator, the one who, who has the right to rule. And that wall must be removed if we are to be, to be set free, if we are to be brought into this uh, a place of you know, peace in the presence of God. And so the question, and this is important, the question that the Jew and the Gentile has to be asking themselves is the same question that you and I have got to ask ourselves. And the question is this, how can I, a sinful person, be accepted by an infinitely holy and righteous God? It's the same question for all. For the Jewish people, prior to the cross of Christ, there was this, this great wall between them and others. There was a hostility there. Uh, the Greek word that we, we translate, you know, uh, they, from uh, the Greek, uh, Gentile rather, let me get back to that. The word Gentile itself is translated from a Greek word that means nations. Not quite what you'd expect, but the idea here is that there is Israel and then there's every other nation. And so that's where this word Gentile comes into play. In the Old Testament, God, God gave the Jews the, the law. And they worshipped in the temple in Jerusalem. And, and the Gentiles were excluded from that. That was nothing they were allowed to partake in. They were not allowed to enter the inner courts. They, they had special rules, the Jews did. What they could eat, what they could not eat. Uh, they were the ones who would bring sacrifices to the priest to be made on their behalf. They, they were so protected from these other cultures as a way of preserving them as the people of God. And it was by God's design. And, and yet this created what was a great hostility between themselves and, and the Gentiles around them. Thus, there are two walls of hostility that Jesus has come to break down. The first, of course, being the wall between God and, and his people that he seeks to save. And the second being the wall between people and each other. Uh, these walls that are built on some cultural aspect. Uh, and so let's, let's consider then the, the peace that Jesus brings between God and his people, which uh, really means we're going to jump to verse 16 and then we're going to come back to verses 14 and 15. And so verse 16, we read the purpose of God and the death of Christ is that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. God's desire to create peace between himself and his people. That's his desire. That's why in chapter 6 uh, of this same book of Ephesians, Paul's going to speak about the gospel, and he's going to call it the gospel of peace. You know, the good news of peace. Jesus himself even spoke about how he came to break down this wall of hostility, that, that he was coming to make this, this gateway of peace between God and his people. In John 14, 6, Jesus makes one of those, the famous I am statements. And he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Do you hear what that means? But before there was no way, 
now there is a way, and, and Jesus is the only way to have peace with God. That's the way. Look, look at verse 17 here. It tells us that Jesus is, is preaching peace. It says, And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. The prophet Isaiah, hundreds of, of years before Christ's time, uh, spoke of this. He, he prophesied about a time when, when peace would come and, and would be proclaimed to those who were near and far. Isaiah 57, 19 tells us, Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord. And I will heal them. And Jesus preached to those who were near and to, to far. He preached to both uh, the Jew and, and the Gentile. And, and yet we know, you know, historically, Jesus himself didn't travel to places like Ephesus. He didn't travel to Rome. But the disciples did. And those that came after the disciples certainly did. And, and that's what the church is still doing today, going to those who are near and those who are far off and proclaiming peace so that God might, might draw them near to himself. I don't know if you realize this, but when we proclaim the gospel, that's a proclamation of, of peace. John, John Lennon, uh, the Beatle, I think he was a Beatle, uh, you know, he sang that song about imagining a world where there is no, re no religion. And his assumption was if you could remove religion from the world, then that would bring about some sort of peace. <clears throat> but real peace doesn't come that way. Real Peace will come through gospel transforming hardened hearts of sinners into soft hearts which find rest in the gospel. See, if John Lennon really wants peace, he needs to imagine a world that is absolutely saturated by the gospel. What a beautiful thing that would be. And that's the eternity that, that God is building. That's, that's part of our hope when we proclaim it to others, Right? Uh, Isaiah 52.7 speaks of the, the, to the beauty of the person who proclaims the gospel to someone else. It says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. See, I, I have peace. You bring this into a personal level. I have peace with God today because a, a brother in Christ was willing to speak the gospel to me because he was willing to invite me to places where someone else was going to speak the gospel to me. Where I would hear this, you know, that did Jesus died on the cross for the sins of his, of his people. Uh, this is a beautiful thing. I don't know if you've thought about this, but at the moment that Jesus died on the, on the cross for his people, we, we also see here in verse 16 that that, that he also died, he also killed the hostility between these same people and God. One of the things we know about, about Christ and his death is that three, later, three days later, Jesus was resurrected back unto life. He rose from the dead, and yet the hostility that Jesus killed is dead forever, for all of eternity. So I'll ask you this morning, Christian, do you, do you feel confident saying now that there is peace between you and God? Is, is that a comfortable statement for you to make? In Luke 7.50, a, a woman with a, quite a, a sinful history comes and, and pours oil at, at Jesus' feet. And the others in the, in the room around her look down upon her, wondering, you know, why doesn't Jesus know her, her sin and such? And, and, and yet at that time, Jesus has this statement. He says to her, Jesus says, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. See, God gave her this gift of faith, and, and when God gives us 
uh, faith in, in Jesus, he is breaking down this wall of hostility and it's creating this, this real, this eternal peace between God and, and that individual, between you and, and, and God in this sense. You know, if, you're, if your faith is in Christ, then you have peace with God. You have peace in this life. And I know you, you hear that and some of you are thinking, if, if that's true, why don't I feel it? You know, why... why are our lives still filled, filled with anxiety, still filled with fear? Where is this peace? If we're supposed to be experiencing this in the gospel, why don't I feel that peace? Where's the, the peace that Jesus speaks of in John 14, 27, when he says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You see, what happens to us, Christians, is that we forget the real truth. I mean, we, we know it. If, if I were to ask you, if you were to take a test, you'd get the answer, right? You, you know the, the truth of the gospel, but somehow it has drifted away from our day-to-day -day living as far as how it influences us. And, and, and little by little, these lies begin to, to sound like truth that we're hearing all around us. And we forget to rest in the gospel. I'll, uh, you know, I've, I've given you some perspective of my life as the youngest. I present it as a really rough thing, but it's pretty wonderful in most regards. Um, but I'll tell you a, another story of my, of my childhood that relates to the way that we forget truth and, and the way that believing lies will affect our, our, our lives. I, I used to have this, this big freckle here. You can kind of still see what's left of it. Uh, and, and when I was in like first or, or second grade, my two older brothers uh, were, were looking at it and they told me, that's poop under your skin. And so I went to my parents and showed them the poop under my skin and, and they confirmed for me that it was not such, it was a freckle. And, and yet little by little in the presence of my brothers they continued to convince me that this was indeed poop in my skin. And so uh, as an anxious elementary school student I took a compass, one of those things that you make a circle with in math, uh, and I took the sharp end of that and began to dig out the poop from my skin. Um, it created a lot of blood and pain, and, and this was a result of me believing their lie. And instead of trusting what, what I knew to be true from a source that was being honest with me, my parents, you know, I believed this lie little by little until it absolutely affected the way I, I behaved in life that way. Um, we, we do this as Christians when we start to live with these, these secular views, that, that life is all there is. This life is it. There's nothing more to it. Uh, when we start to believe that our financial security is more important than our eternal security, when we, when we watch the news, wherever we watch it, and we believe that, that somehow the world has just spun out of God's control, and we fear. See, what we need to know, what we need to believe on a daily basis is, is that our peace is in Christ. To really, really know that when we see these things in the world. So that we know that, you know, tomorrow you, you could lose your job. Tomorrow you could lose your health. Tomorrow our government could absolutely fall apart. In fact, tomorrow the world could absolutely just explode, right? And still our souls would be safe in the hands of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Accomplished by his, his death on the cross for us. That's, that's the peace which surpasses all understanding. That's the peace that guards our hearts and our minds no matter what might happen around us. And so then this, this peace between God, this 
confidence that we have as a result of what he has done for us that, you know, that is a, a vertical piece. And out of that flows this, this horizontal piece to those around us, between us and all those whom God has redeemed in particular. This, this peace between the, the Jews and the Gentiles is, is really the main focus that Paul has in this letter at this point. In verses 14 and 15, which, which begins with uh, speaking of Jesus, saying, For he himself is our peace. First of all, Jesus doesn't just provide peace. He himself is our peace. And, and don't miss the little detail there that Paul uses that word our, right? O-U-R. I might sound like a pirate otherwise. Um, and, and, and that word our is including both the Jews and the Gentile. He's bringing them together, even in the language here. It's, it's like when a, a couple get married and, and they have their home, whether it belonged to one of them beforehand or not, or a totally new place, and they, they use that phrase and it feels so good, right? This is our home, our place. See, Jesus is, is peace for Jews, and Jesus is peace for Gentiles. You remember earlier I, I told you the word Gentile is from that, that Greek word that means nations. Well, uh, it's of some value if you understand this, that it's the exact same Greek word in Matthew twenty-eight nineteen translated as, as nations there, when Jesus gives the Great Commission, telling the disciples, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. That last word is the exact same Greek word that we, we use for Gentiles. See, Jesus was, was telling them, that the wall between Jews and the rest of the world has, has come down. That the, this, uh, the Ephesian church, you know, was, was made up of, of Jews and Gentiles. I, I mentioned that before. They, the Jews and the Gentiles, they, they ate together and they prayed together and they gathered together and they worshipped the Lord together. And, and this was, was an astonishing, uh, it just a beautiful picture of how the gospel has, has changed them. How, how the gospel has changed even the deepest prejudice of, of the Jews and the Gentiles. See, one of the, how, how many of you have been on a short-term mission in your life? Overseas in particular. One of the, one of the wonderful things about short-term missions is, is to see the gospel at work in a culture so different than our own. Uh, in a people using different languages and, and just different. And yet the same gospel is at work there. Um, a while back on a, a trip to Juarez, Mexico, um, the, the Christians there, the Mexican Christians shared with us uh, about this, this talk of a wall on, on the border there. And, and this was long before President Trump had, had come up with this idea. Uh, and so one woman told us that she didn't believe the, the wall would work, that it would actually solve the problem. And, and she said that the reason was that, that the USA was this great hope for, for the residents there. I mean, that was where they thought they would find satisfaction. That was where they dreamed to be. And, and, and she told us that, you know, that, that her dream really was, was to see a wall of, cro of churches across the border. And, and she said, because, because the gospel gives hope to, to people, the, the gospel gives satisfaction to people where they actually are at any given moment. And she, she said that, she told us a story about a, a man who, who came to war as planning to cross the border illegally into the United States only to, to hear the gospel and believe the gospel and, and to be involved in the church there. And it absolutely changed his plans. You know, he, he decided he wanted to return back to the town he came to, to, the, to join the church there and to work to improve the community, to, to work that he might proclaim the gospel to those present there. And you, you see, the wall between the Jews and the Gentiles is, is gone. 
Because our passage says that, that Jesus has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh, he's talking about his own bodily death. And, and you talk about this wall coming down. You know, remember the, the courts? We mentioned it last week. We talked about it back in Acts. And in the temple, there were these courts, and there was actual physical wall dividing each of these, these areas from each other between the courts. And uh, it kept the Gentiles from entering an area where only the Jews could go. And there was that sign outside that, that warned the Gentiles if, if you cross this wall, the death that is surely going to come upon you, that's on your hands. That's on you. You know, that, that's, that was the Jewish church growth model at the time. It's not a good one. Um, anyway, Paul may or, or may not have had that particular wall in mind. Most believe he did. And either way, though, the same idea rings true here that the wall represents. If, if that wall is gone, then now the Jews and the Gentiles are both coming into something new. See, the gospel was not to make Gentiles into Jews. Many of the Jews kind of thought that was what it was supposed to be at first. But that's not what God was doing. It's to make both Jews and Gentiles into something, someone completely new. It's just like when you take eggs and flour and butter and vanilla and baking soda and sugar and chocolate chips, it's not to make the sugar more like eggs or to make the eggs more like butter, it's to make something new, something better. In the case of baking, we're talking about chocolate chip cookies. In the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, it is to make a Christian, a new person, a child of God, uh, and brought together to, to make Christ's church. And yet, some of the Jews in the early church liked the wall. They just did. They liked being part of an exclusive group. They, they liked the protection that came with that. The, but the wall of hostility is gone, and that's what Paul keeps trying to tell them. That's the point that God is making in this passage. God is basically saying, I, I built the wall, and now I am tearing the wall down, and my purpose for the wall is over in this regard. There, there should be peace between y'all. It should evoke this, this absolute joy for the Jews to watch their, their Gentiles around them coming to faith, to, to see them set free in the gospel. Laura and I, we graduated Texas A&M. Um, it's just fun to mention Texas A&M. No. Um, George W., no, George H. Bush Presidential Library is, is located there. It was on the campus. We only visited once. I can't believe we only did it once. But uh, while we were under, undergraduates, we did visit it. And outside of the library is this huge sculpture. And it's a sculpture of the broken, a broken section of the Berlin Wall. And written on this, this part of the wall in graffiti are the words, set them free. And it was a replica of what someone actually saw at the wall at one point. Uh, the actual 14-foot Berlin Wall came down on November 9, 1989. And when it did, people around the globe rejoiced because they saw people coming into freedom. They saw this wall come down, setting these people free. And, and it's a beautiful picture because that's the kind of joy that we should feel even greater every time we see God break down the wall between himself and a sinner, no matter where in the, in the world they might be. And so before we go on, uh, our passage tells us in verse 15 here that, that Jesus broke down the wall between Jews and Gentiles, and it says he did so by abolishing 
the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. He is not speaking of the moral law here. He's not speaking of the, the Ten Commandments. He's speaking of the, the civil law, the ceremonial law, and with it the sacrificial system uh, that required the Jews to travel to Jerusalem to make these sacrifices. See, when, when Jesus sacrifices himself on the cross, when he pours out his blood for us, he, he renders the temple sacrifices absolutely obsolete, no longer necessary. And that means those, those ceremonial differences between the Jews and the Gentiles were no longer. You see, the Jew could no longer lord it over the Gentiles, you know, that, that, they could, you know, that the Gentiles could not come to the temple and make sacrifices because now there's really no reason for the Jew to be going to, the sac- go to make sacrifices either. It was obsolete. Uh, Brian Chapel, he was the president of our denominational seminary at one point. I'm not sure what he's doing right now. Uh, but he puts this beautiful when he writes, Through the shedding of his blood, Jesus erased the distinguishing features of two races of humanity. He wiped out the features of those who were distinguished by their participation in temple ceremonies. And he wiped out the distinctions of those who were denigrated by their exclusion from the temple ceremonies. And so to the point of Galatians 3.28 There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ. Now there are certainly still those who can be labeled Jews and Greeks in the world, and there are still those who can be labeled male and female in the world. And the point here is that both groups have this unity in the gospel, both are one body in Christ. And that's why in, in verse 15 of our passage, it says that, that Jesus has done on the cross, what Jesus has done on the cross is to create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Like we mentioned before, it's not just two people <clears throat> alike, as though you know, you're selecting the best aspects of each group. He's creating a completely new person. And if we are one single body, then we ought to to not have hatred towards each other. Just as Paul is going to mention, actually, in in chapter 5, just a few pages away of Ephesians, he's going to say that no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. See, once we realize that we are one body with those who used to be enemies, we can begin to ask how we might cherish those fellow Christians, how we might nourish those brothers and sisters in Christ. This this peace with God is is leading to peace with each other. Um, I don't know if you've noticed, but that actually has a place in our liturgy every single week, right? Um, There's a reason that we don't just call it, you know, awkwardly greet your neighbor until they ring the bell time, right? We call it the passing of the peace, which sounds a little weird, and we're okay with it being weird because it's there to to teach us and and a practice for us to actually partake in. On on page 9 of your bulletin, we have this confession of our sin, And, and then after we have confessed our sin, we have this assurance where we are reminded that in the gospel our sins are forgiven and that we are reconciled to God. That's the vertical aspect. And, and then we sing a song that reflects on that. And then, only then, do we have the passing of the peace. That's the horizontal aspect. We are re- reconciled to God, and thus we are reconciled to each other. And so we have this, this peace with God as Christians, and so we have this peace with other Christians as a result of that. Um, 
Now, on a side note, when we met in the, the Mennonite church across town, that's where we first started having worship services, they had this poster that listed the word peace in about 100 languages, maybe. Uh, the best one was in the, lang- the Danish language. Uh, the word is Fred. Uh, and to this day, you know, Andrew will still s- sometimes greet me during the past in the peace with the Fred of Christ to you. And I'll think, what is he talking? Oh, yeah. Uh, and, but I, I love it because here he is using some other language to communicate that the peace that we have with each other because of the peace we have with God. It's beautiful. All right, so verse 18, our last verse today, it brings it all together. It says, for through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So it used to be only the Jews had access to God. Only they had God's revelation in Scripture. Only they had the law. Only they could enter the temple. But now both the Jew and the Gentile both have the same access to God. And this access is about nearness to God. You know, you, you and I, people have tried it recently, actually. You know, if you try to go knock on the front door of the White House, it does not go well for you. But if you're the president's daughter, it's, it's no big deal to enter into the White House. It's no big deal to enter into the Oval Office and, and speak to, to your father if he's the president. I mean, that's... That's the kind of access we're talking about. You know, through the, the Holy Spirit, we now have access to God through, through prayer. We can speak to him and, and know that God actually listens to us. You know, that, uh, that as the Holy Spirit enlightens our minds, we can hear from God in, in, in Scripture as we are, are reading it. At our death, we'll be present with God the Father because of our union with Jesus. And, and, and this is no different whether one is a Jew or a Gentile, whether someone is, is white or black, man or woman, Mexican or American. What matters is, do you know Jesus Christ through the gospel? And so, so you might hear all this. And I think our temptation sometimes is to think, okay, that's great for the Jews and the Gentiles, but... We don't even think of those categories anymore. And I, I agree, but, but here's the big deal of this passage. Here's the part you've got to understand. If, if God can bring peace between the Jews and the Gentiles and the hatred that they had for each other, if, if God can bring peace in the gospel between these groups, then there is no depths of cultural hatred between races in our country or any other country that God cannot bring to a place of true unity, true peace, that we find in the gospel. Peace with Christ gives us peace with one another. Peace that crosses social classes, that crosses personal differences, political differences, generational differences, non-essential theological differences, and of course, racial differences. There's a, a common phrase that this hour on Sunday morning that we are experiencing right now is one of the most segregated hours of the week. And it doesn't take us long to look around and realize there's some truth to that statement. Wonder, you know, what a, a beautiful testimony to the gospel it would be to, if we found ways to relate to our brothers and sisters who are Korean or black or Mexican or, or whatever. And to be honest, my, my hope is that the better that we, we understand passages like this, the better we understand God's word and, and the peace that he desires for his children to dwell, you know, the desire he has for his children to dwell in unity that will actually take steps to do so. It's not a guilt on, on you or anyone. It's a, a statement of where do we have opportunities to do this? Let's, let's look for those. 
you know, to, to show hospitality and, and love to those who are very different from us, and yet those who are at peace in the same way we are through the, the gospel of Christ. And that's, that's not to say that everyone on the planet can find some unity. This isn't some world peace idea, you know, because um, it can't happen. But, but in Christ, there's no reason that Christians of various ethnic and cultural backgrounds shouldn't have a true and deep love for each other. And that means that we, we must be looking for places in our lives where, where there are these, these cultural walls and racial walls. And, you know, in, in the case that we, that we see that God has torn down these walls, that we, we acknowledge that and we see that. Uh, and one of the ways to do that is just to become aware of that. Let me, let me end with what has been called the hierarchy of, of hatred. It's a way to analyze our own hearts and, and attitudes in regards to the, the commands of Scripture in this regard. It's a, it's a list, basically, that, that moves from, from, from obvious racism to uh, subtle prejudice to, to true unity. And, and it's uh, one of those things that you, you do yourself. I'm not going to analyze you with this, but you should certainly analyze yourself. Anytime you hear the word they or them in this, understand it can be any particular group that you have in mind. And, and so here it is, the, the first, the bottom rung. Um, one, we believe we have reason to hate them because of their race. So that's the real obvious side, right? Uh, two, we will tolerate them if they stay in their place. Three, we will accept them if they become like us or more like us. Four, we will accept them despite our differences. Five, we will love them because God commands us to love them. And finally, six, we love them because we need them because they are part of us. We know that we are to, to love our enemies, but in the gospel we are also to be united in one body with, with all who look to Jesus for the forgiveness of sin. In the church, um, you know, may we seek peace with others from a common place of, of the peace that we have received from God and with God. Uh, let's pray.